0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. Because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Story of a Book is an event where several Lighthouse faculty and their forthcoming books are celebrated. In this fifth annual edition, The Story of a Book featured Benjamin Whitmer, Cry Father, Seth Brady Tucker, We Deserve the Gods We Ask For, Thomas McNeely, Ghost Horse, and Michael Henry, Active Gods. Listen as they discussed the ins and outs of the process they enjoyed or endured in getting their manuscripts from crazy first idea and into actual print.
1: Welcome, everybody, to Lighthouse to the story of a book 5.0. Uh, this is our illustrious panel Mike Henry, Thomas McNeely, Seth Brady Tucker, and Benjamin Whitmore. Let's give them up for them. <laughs> Uh, we're going to, the evening is set up. Uh, these guys are each going to um, describe uh, the story of the book uh, from first concept into uh, release date, pub date, um, and then read for uh, two, three minutes from the, from the book. And then afterwards, there'll be about a 10 minute Q&A with you guys. Um, Uh, You know, no holds barred. Like, like, go after these guys. Like, I'm serious. Like, they can, they can take it. You know. Um, But uh, and then after that, uh, tattered cover is back, back there. Uh, Mr. Caleb uh, can uh, has all these, uh, all the books for sale, and and we can do a book signing. Okay. All right. So we're just going to jump on in. So uh, Benjamin Whitmer, you're up first, my man. Ben Whitmer is the author of Pike. Yep, yep, yep. Ben Whitmer is the author of Pike. Which was nominated for the 2013 Grand Prix de Literature Policier. That's exactly how you pronounce it, I'm sure. Uh, God, so American. And co author with Charlie Lubin of Satan is Real, a New York Times critic's choice book. His new novel is the critically acclaimed Cry Father. Let's give it up for Ben.
2: and situate my beer. <laughs> See how that works? <laughs> you better start a timer, Dan. <laughs> uh, I have a ruthless, ruthless hangover, and it's actually Dan's fault. <laughs> we went out to the... Uh... Oh, my God. <laughs> so if I start wandering, it's Carl's job to stand up and smack me. And if my eyes start bleeding or anything, you just got to deal with it. <laughs> We did a noir walk, so we went out and walked and did some noir locations in Denver, and there was, unfortunately, lots of bourbon involved. <laughs> so it was a lot of fun. <laughs> but uh, I haven't felt this bad in a long time. <laughs> and if you've, if you've read this book, you, you know that means something. <laughs> Very few things in this I made up. <laughs> Put it that way. Uh, so... um my book. Uh, I guess we're supposed to talk about how it came about, or some influence, or something. Um, I'm just making shit up. <laughs> I uh, I had this buddy, a, a best friend of mine. His name was Paul Shank, and he uh, he was a uh, he's a single dad like me, and we sort of had this plan going a couple of years ago to go down the San Luis Valley, get our kids raised, go down the San Luis Valley, buy a couple trailers, and be left the fuck alone. <laughs> we're like we can do this for the rest of our lives, you no know, be eighty and we'll be we'll die and it'll be nice and <laughs> won't be any more of this shit. <laughs> so so we we're real excited about that. He got killed by the cops last year, so uh but um you know his influence was huge on the book. Um another buddy of mine is actually his the job and the guy in the book is based on a buddy of mine, Lucas uh Bogan, he's a tree trimmer, right? And every year or so, he'll come through Denver, and and you won't see me for a few days. <laughs> I'll break all plans, and I'll end up off with Lucas somewhere, and we'll be drinking way too much. And then one time we did that, and he told me all about his job. It's was like, amazing job. He's like, at, thereafter Katrina, he's cutting down uh, trees and stuff and clearing the power lines and all that stuff. It's incredibly dangerous work, right? And they're living in man camps, you know, basically camping cooking on campfires doing whatever they have to do and sometimes clearing out bodies and shit <laughs> so i was like well oh, you know i'm gonna steal that obviously <laughs> i told him you know i was like look you realize i'm ripping this off i really only have one you know advice point of advice i ever give writers and that's cultivate friendships with interesting people so you can steal them steal their stories you know so this is a perfect example of that gone right and the other thing i was thinking about was a I'm a huge, I'm, I'm a really, like I'm 10 years old, right? So I wanted to write an outlaw book, sort of like the 70s Peck and Peckinpah movies that I'm in love with, right? Because <laughs> I end up watching Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid like six times a year. <laughs> Just, I put it on, I'm like, I want to write one like this. you <laughs> know, With all that sort of, you know, bullshit male sadness. And I'm like, that's my stuff. <laughs> so... <laughs> so Here's the, here's the bullshit male sadness. <laughs> so that was sort of the third thing I'm going to get to the, the there's one two more. <laughs> the other thing is uh, somebody asked me the other day in an interview. I do these dumb interviews for this book all the time, you know. Now it'll it lasts for two months. I hate this part. <laughs> and somebody asked me who, the other day who my uh, greatest literary influence is. It's such a you know it's a ridiculous question, right? But I always get the same answer, and that's Wayland Jennings. <laughs> <laughs> If I can at one time get down one of the songs, you know, the feelings of one of his sad songs, I'm fine. <laughs> that's it. That's all I need. Like, dreaming My Dreams, if I can just make that into a, yeah, that's it. So, but here's the last. I'm going to read a little bit, and then I'll give you my last piece of the influence, which is kind of funny. Because it's made everybody misread the book. I'm going to give you all the real deal. It's kind of funny. <laughs> so, uh, my main characters are, one of my main characters, name is Junior. He's a, he's a meth runner. Most of the meth is produced down on a down in Mexico and comes up through the from the, in these super labs and it's driven up anymore. It's no longer the sort of mom and pop operations that we all love. You know, it's more like <laughs> it's more like a Walmart thing. You know, sorry. So, so junior Junior runs the meth for these guys. Uh, he's got uh, two buddies, Vicente and Eduardo, who sort of they're middlemen in Denver, and I love them. They're my favorite characters. So uh, this is just a little scene that they're sort of just shit, sitting around shooting the shit, um, and they're playing chess because all my characters love chess because I'm a horrible plus ch- uh, chess player so I always love writing about it. <laughs> I play like six games a day on my phone and I lose every one to it. A... I hate fucking chess. <laughs> so, 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 anyways. It's just a short piece of dialogue, and uh, then I'll get to why I'm reading it. You've got to stop me if I'm reading it. Okay. So behind them, the, the, so Eduardo, uh, Vicente and, uh, and Junior sitting down playing chess, eating pizza, doing whatever they're doing. Eduardo's the other guy back there. He's, uh, he's sort of working on a car. They also, they're also car nuts because they're gearheads because the guy I worked with was a gearhead, so I had lots of somebody talk cars about us. Fuck it. <laughs> Eduardo's digging under the hood of Vicente's Lexus RX-H. RXH. I have no idea what that is. My buddy at work said that that was the right car for these guys. <laughs> his back is almost as wide as the chassis. His tattoos melting in and out of the shadows cast by the shop light in the hood. Vicente has made comments once or twice about how much Eduardo looks like his deceased wife. Junior is kind enough to never reflect on what that must have meant for the poor woman. <laughs> it, <laughs> is that your move Vicente asked Junior Junior takes his hand off his bishop oh by the way Junior's a little hungover in this scene so kind of why I picked it (laughs) that's it (laughs) there are worse moves Vicente says I know there are better moves as well I figured (laughs) Junior's stupefied with exhaustion counting the hours till dusk letting the cocaine run out of his system he can barely track the game at all he's running on pattern recognition that doesn't even register in his conscious mind Vicente removes his round glasses, breathes on them, and wipes them on his T-shirt. His small eyes twitch, blink. I am thinking of going back to cocaine, he says. No money in it, Junior says. That's what you told me. There's money in it. There's not as much money in it. Not as many people have the money to afford cocaine in these economic times. (laughs) Crystal meth is a working man's drug. Then why go back to cocaine? Cocaine. I don't like these methamphetamine dealers. I don't trust them. They're not like the cocaine cartels. They're not interested in drugs. They're interested in movements. They build schools and roads. I don't give a shit what I'm driving, Junior says. Can you quit snorting the cocaine, Vicente asks. I have to quit snorting it to drive it? It is a good practice. (laughs) You mean don't get high on your own supply? Exactly, Vicente nods. From the movie. It is a good practice. It's a movie, Junior says, a Hollywood movie with Al Pacino in it. Who gives a shit what Al Pacino thinks? (laughs) Vicente ponders that, and then he nods again. True, he says, but it still seems like a good practice. Eduardo walks up behind Vicente and puts one of his hands on Vicente's shoulder. Did you move, he asks Junior. I moved, Junior says. You could have forked him with your knight, there and there. I saw it. You saw it when? Right after I moved. (laughs) Eduardo laughs out loud. I have to make a parts run, he says to Vicente, nodding back at the Lexus. I'll be back in an hour. Food, Vicente says. Pick up some food. Eduardo nods and leaves them to their game. So, what do you have against building roads anyway, Junior asks? Or schools. What the fuck's wrong with schools? Vicente's eyes are on the board. I don't trust movements. I've soured on movements. There's one cartel for methamphetamines now, and it is a religious movement. They carry Bibles of their own sayings. What kind of sayings? A man must get his heart back. We have been wounded so deeply we don't want our heart anymore. They have stripped us of our courage. They have destroyed our creativity. They have made intimacy with God impossible for us. We live in a love story in the middle of a war. That kind. Gibberish. (laughs) 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 You don't believe in God, Junior asks? Of course not, Vicente says. All right. You do? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. When you think about it, you mean? Yeah, when I think about it. Then you don't believe in God. Junior shrugs. All right. Vicente moves upon. How is your daughter? She's all right. All right, all right, Vicente said. Everything is all right with you. Everything's all right with me. So, <laughs> now, here's the funny story, okay? All those sayings, they're real. Although I had, to, I had to manipulate them. I'll tell you why in a second. But there's this real guy in Fort Collins, this sort of nuts uh, religious dude, uh, the evangelist. God bless him. He wrote a terrible book called Wild at Heart, which I love. And it's like his, the- his thesis is that like men can't form intimacy with God because they're not being actually Christ-like. We need to stop thinking of Christ as sort of this pacifist, you know, wimpy guy. We need to think of him the way of, we would think of William Wallace. And what I love is that he obviously doesn't mean William Wallace. He means Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> As William Wallace. (laughs) So so I'm like, this is the greatest nonsense I've ever read. That that masculine bullshit sadness, this is it. (laughs) So, so, you know, it's it's the most insane, wild, uh, you know, construction of masculinity that I'd ever seen. So I'm like, I'm going to put that in my fucking book. And then I found out, and I can't make this shit up, that one of the cartels, La Familia, the methamphetamine cartels, actually loves this guy. And their leader, not making this up either, El Mas Loco, (laughs) (laughs) carries around a little book of quotes from this dude. And you have to read them to be in the cartel. And they really do build schools and roads. I mean, they're not all bad guys. Except for loving Mel Gibson. (laughs) But I just, I love that thread. So I put all these quotes in my book, right? And I was like, yeah, this is gonna be fun. I'm gonna fuck with this guy. And um, but then I sent it to my editor <laughs> as Simon and & Schuster, and he went, I don't think he's going to be okay with this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so I think you have to change the name, and I had to go through and find all the quotes and sort of rephrase them, right? So I changed the name of the book to Brave of Heart. Isn't that good? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm clever. <laughs> right? <laughs> And so I put all this stuff in there about, you know, a man needs a quest in his life. He needs a maiden to rescue and all the shit that was in the book. And I loved it. Rephrased it. And I just started getting emails from, like, men's rights advocate guys who were like, you really tapped into something. And I'm going like, oh, fuck me. I can't, I
3: can't help you guys.
2: <laughs> huh? I know I'm like Jesus Christ they're going to go off and start playing drums and shit <laughs> sitting around <in> campfires <laughs> like oh my god <laughs> so anyways that's, that's all I got <laughs> thanks
1: Ben that was awesome alright uh, up second we have Seth Brady Tucker Seth Brady Tucker's first book, Mormon Boy, won the Elixir uh, Press Prize and was a finalist for the Colorado Book Award and his second book, We Deserve the Gods We Asked For, won the... Gavel? How do you say that? Javal. Javal. God. There's going to be one in every one of these that I'm just going (laughs) to slaughter. Uh, Press Prize and was published this month He is a poet and fiction writer Originally from Lander, Wyoming Directs the Seaside Writers Conference Which takes place annually in May And teaches at the Colorado School of Mines Let's welcome Seth
4: (laughs) Can I just leave that here And you can hear me All right we have a lot of tall people on this panel today, so shit. I have to follow Ben. Um, <laughs> these two, these two are like, Ooh. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about poetry, a little bit about, and, and the fiction writers in the audience are like, oh shit, really? <laughs> You're going to talk about poetry. Um, <laughs> yeah My book is about sad male bullshit
3: um,
4: which, a- which, which actually that's probably better than my answer um, So we deserve the gods we asked for um, about a year before I'd, I'd published my first book, which was more of a narrative, it, it followed a little bit more of a narrative theme as far as following this Mormon boy through the travails of joining the military and doing all these other things. A little bit more narrative, I guess. Um, but I started thinking about soldiers. Um, I was so ready to not talk about myself anymore in my poetry and just not have anything invested. Um, and so I started thinking about, or I've always thought about, how soldiers, how we sort of abandon them when they come home. Um, you know, they're heroic, everybody loves them, and then they put on civilian clothes, and they're indistinguishable from the rest of us, and nobody knows sort of what happens to them or where they go. And so what I wanted to investigate is how um, these sort of gods disappear out of our lives. And that was so fucking sad. And it was such a sad bunch of poems. And um, so I was working on it for maybe two or three years, and it it occurred to me that it didn't have any of the lightness or humor that the book needed, because, you know, we're all human and things are funny. And so I started thinking about how I can inject humor into that, and so I started bringing in more uh, cartoon characters after they've... Come home from the war, I guess you know, Popeye, when uh, the cameras have turned off on him, Wiley e. coyote when he 's finally lost the girl and he 's never going to get um, road runner, no chance he just has failed over and over and over again, um, so the first half of the book is is kind of devoted to these tragic heroes, I guess, and then and then hopefully the book gets more and more cheery as it goes along, but um, that was how that was how the first initial drafts worked. Then I started sending it out to contests. And that's kind of for the poets out there that's sort of one way that you can get a poetry book published these days without self-publishing is to send it out to contests. And I had really good response responses I had three or four I think that first year where I was a finalist for Whatever poetry contest uh, Tampa review poetry contest Whatever whatever So more than anything it was just this validation that I thought okay I'm on the right track um, People seem to respond To this story And then I totally changed it Because that's what you do if you're a poet Because you don't really want to get published You know <laughs> Deep down inside none of us really want These to come out And uh, so I changed it completely, and it sort of did about as well the next year. And then I started thinking, well, I'm getting close, but am I going to be that guy with one book? It's because the second book is, I think, as difficult as the first book. Now they, now they know that, it's, that you've been published and you're not the new thing, and a lot of these presses want to publish the new thing. And uh, so I started sending it out, I, I reframed it again, and uh, Nils Michaels, if anybody's read his poetry Or is aware of his poetry He was uh, living in Boulder, a great poet um, Recently moved to ke- back to California But he took the manuscript and he read it And he's like, if you're going to name your book We Deserve the Gods We Asked For Doesn't it have to start with the first poem being In the Beginning Which at the time was like in the second half of the book And I'm like, yeah, that would, that would be pretty smart <laughs>
3: Uh, You know,
4: that moment of like, my poetry is smarter than I am. And then anybody who reads it is smarter than I am. And um, so I sent it out that way. It got picked up by Javal Press. Um, I think the Q&A we can talk about sort of how presses work and everything like that. Am I about time? Okay. Um, So I'm going to jump into it. But anyway, so it got picked up. Very happy about it. I'm sure you'll have questions for Ben. <laughs> for Ben. <laughs> All right, so this is called In the Beginning, because that's where you want to start with a book. that <laughs> In the Beginning. Because it cannot begin in any other way, it begins in the beginning with there was dust. And from the dust there was sky, and because and because there was dust and sky, there was wind, and the wind was ochre and rust, and the dust and into the wind and the dust was a child of forests born and gardens born, and then a child of sea and because there was already wind and dust and let's face it there were rocks and boulders and terrible cliff faces and the valleys and the bones of mountains all there for the wind to gnaw upon and devour and shit out and it was t- until it was totally fucked up and dry and barren and into this place the robotic children of men their telos to dig and rumble and taste with tongues lolling from vacuum sealed orf- orifices Fingered, fingers angled and bifurcated, digging, claws square-cornered, hearts like dragonflies, nanocarved from carbon bocce balls, linear and straight as rulers. In this new world, suffuse only with red, craggy canals and righteous natural curves. And thank you. No, i I have a couple more. Yeah. You okay with that? Yeah. All right. I should go out on a clap. <laughs> All right. And this is called this is called Wiley Coyote. And I should. I actually brought technology because I knew I wouldn't be able to read my own poetry because the print is small. Um, and then I thought, that's just going to be me up here tapping in a password. And then not getting it right, and then having to get my wife to come up and help me. So sorry if I'm holding it up to my face. It began with Percocet, Valium, and Vicodin, as it so often does after so many gruesome falls from terrific heights. After all the bone-grinding dust clouds of Smash, Bam, and Crunch... So many locomotives bearing heavy freight out of painted-on tunnels. After A trick, certainly, of corporate America, of sponsors like Acme, Ford, or Calgon, the ancient Chinese betrayal of those clean clothes. But these sound like excuses now. Because I was the contracted stuntman, the demolition expert, the adrenaline junkie, then a real junkie. White horse, the only thing left to ride. And you were taking your thick runner's legs to Acme University anyway. Full ride, slumming with me even, when, even though I was famous. And what happens then is what always happens. City girl dumps country boy. It was too much, I guess, us fucking on the first night. I lost my place. <laughs> So I'll say it again (laughs) It was too much, I guess Us fucking on the first night Our fire stoked with alcohol, lewds, and ecstasy Then the horror of the morning after Beep, beep, pow Leaving (laughs) pantyless and sticky And then my chasing, chasing, chasing And who could blame me? You were the elusive first high of heroin, the first long-legged athlete to see beyond the pink patches of scars and fur. And for me, to, and for me that single night was enough to confirm our future together. And it began, began with my traps of unanswered texts. Deleted emails, wilted notes stuck to your car door, and yes, the shameful raw threats that followed. Then, yikes, the real dynamite and hammer traps set deliberately to flatten you. (laughs) Until you just couldn't take it anymore. But I am over it now, you should know, so you can quit hiding, fire the bodyguards, turn off your security system, and relax. All I wanted was the chance to watch you wash your car in the sun study you at the window over the kitchen sink, listen, maybe listen to your odd choices of music through the wall, and dream of stroking the long, sleek down of your neck again, feel something no one from my family could resist. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Seth. All right. We have uh, Thomas McNeely up next. Thomas McNeely is a former Stegner Fellow and Jones Lecturer in Fiction at Stanford University. His his work has appeared in The Atlantic, Plowshares, the Virginia Quarterly uh, Review, and Epic, and has been anthologized in the best American mystery stories, What If writing exercises for fiction writers, and Algonquin Books, Best of the South, from the second decade of New Stories from the South. He has also received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Dobie Paisano program at the University of Texas at Austin, and the McDowell Colony. He currently teaches in the Stanford Online Writer Studio and the Emerson College Honors Program. Let's welcome Tom McNeely.
5: thank you, thank you very much for coming out um, my book's about sad male bullshit too <laughs> um, i I' thought about well the, the the question of when this book began was uh was when I was a kid uh, that 's the, the really the honest answer as is uh, uh, it began when i was a a kid and i was um A kid who, like many of us, probably was uh, in a family that uh, had broken up. And I had a lot of secrets that I carried around when I was a child. So that's the honest answer uh, to that. And I think the genesis of the book came, oh, more years ago than I'd like to admit. It appeared in the form of a short story story. None of the characters in that short story Appear in this (laughs) In this novel Um, It took a a, a, It went through many different drafts And uh, incarnations But I guess the Constant in all of those Was uh, a couple of obsessions That I had uh, I guess kept me going And also at, at a certain point, you know the the shame of failure <laughs> was a was a uh, was a, a motivator too. But um, I was trying to capture a, a a point a time in life when uh, it's kind of between uh, childhood and adolescence uh, when you're just kind of leaving. Uh, a magical time in your life, and and beginning to see the world as it is, and your family as they are. Um, I was also really interested in a moment uh, in the South when, uh, when at least in the culture that I grew up in. I grew up in a in a in a neighborhood where I was one of the very few uh, English speaking people. Most of the people in my neighborhood were Latino, and um, we kind of existed side by side. You could play with, uh, you could have Latino friends, you could have white friends, uh, at a certain age. But then, at a certain age, it not it it became not okay anymore. and it's a it's a tradition, or a, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, a bad tradition in the in the South. And um, in a way, the the book was trying to get pat, back to um, that moment in time and sort of ask what what happened there. Um, so I'm I'm just going to read. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit of the book. Uh, the the characters here are, well, I'll read from I'll read from the beginning, so I don't have to explain anything. I... <laughs> Last day of fifth grade, Houston, Texas, nineteen seventy-five, the time before Star Wars. A queen of peace, there are piñatas and sugar cookies frosted on natural pastel colors and two sweet fruit punch, mamas in sunglasses chatting with priests, white boys and brown boys making summer pacts. But this is no concern of theirs, of Alex Torres and Buddy Turner's, already hurrying home along the white oak bayou to Alex's house. It is Buddy's last day at Queen of Peace. Next year he will go to a new school across the city where everyone is white but he and Alex won't talk about this. They won't talk about what will happen when Buddy's father comes back at the end of the summer. They have known each other too long to talk about such things. They are hurrying home now, anxious to catch the three o'clock movie on Channel 13. In bare dirt yards along the bayou, dogs bark, pulling at ropes and chains, and Alex seems to fade, to disappear. Both of them, Alex and Buddy, have heard the story that the dog's owners teach them to bite Mexicans, a story that they know probably isn't true. And yet, Buddy can't help but feel glad that he himself will be safe. And as soon as he thinks this, he's ashamed. It has been like this since he found out about the new school, as if he is watching himself in a movie. The walls of Alex's room are covered with flattened-out grocery bags, And on them, drawings of turtles and gulls from the bayou, of the bayou itself, and mixed with these rampaging across the city as if they were just as real, monsters and vampires, robots and demons, leveling skyscrapers with jets of radioactive fire. All summer since Buddy visited his father at Fort Polk, they have worked on the horse, in Alex's room, which smells of sweat and pencil lead and red-hot cinnamon candies that Alex keeps hidden in his desk. Each summer, almost for as long as they can remember, they have planned movies, a mystery about a madman who dumps his victims in the bayou, a cartoon about a gull who follows the bayou back to the gulf. But none of it has come to anything until the horse. To make the horse look real, Alex says, they will have to shoot hundreds, maybe thousands of drawings, each drawing films six frames, a third of a second of film. Day after day they have labored, Alex sketching four horses to a page, handing each page to Buddy to color a number and cut into four separate pieces. They live within a dream, bleary-eyed, back's aching, nerves jangling with sugar. They don't go outside or watch the three o'clock movie or even the cartoons that play on the far reaches of the UHF channels. Sometimes they forget to eat. Each day folds in on itself and vanishes, and all that is left are the drawings, messages from another world. At the end of the day, each day they take stock. How many seconds they have finished, what is yet to be done. They have a tripod borrowed from Mr. Torres and a desk lamp to light the drawings and backgrounds. They have the Super 8 camera and five yellow boxes of film that his father took for him from Grandma Turner's house. What they don't have, aside... From a tape recorder and money to process the film is a finished script. Maybe it's halfway done, maybe a third. Buddy isn't sure. Por qué no, Alex says. Alex paces, clicking a cinnamon candy against his teeth, glowering at Buddy, who sits at his desk. Buddy shrugs, concentrating on cutting out the day's drawings with an, of the horse with an exacto knife. No tenemos más tiempo... Alex says, but he knows what Alex means, that next week he will start at the new school, but he doesn't want to think about it. He doesn't want to think about what will happen when his father comes back from Fort Polk. Lo haré, he says, I'll do it. Este es el gran momento, Alex says. Si hacemos un buen trabajo, nos mostran a los estudios, entonces hacemos una película de verdad. This is what Alex always says, that if they can make a good enough short, the studios will give them a contract. Buddy has seen him on drawing jags before, but nothing like this. The edges of his fingernails are permanently black, and his right f- middle finger is a callus the size of a dime. Buddy doesn't know if he can believe what Alex says about the studios, but he knows that Alex's questions about the script are fake. Alex could make the movie himself. I'll do it, he says. Outside the room, the doorbell rings, then come muffled sounds of Mr. Torres opening the front door and Buddy's mother's voice. He looks up from Alex to the drawings of the horse, imagining the scene in the living room. Mr. Torres, stocky, crew-cut, still wearing his work shirt and slacks from his office job with the city, smiling as stiffly as a mannequin, his eyes watchful, having nothing to do with his smile. His mother, her arms crossed over her white hospital uniform, her weary face beautiful, transformed as it is not when she sees his father. Alex sees him, Alex eyes him, like Mr. Torres. Then he reaches past Buddy, opens a drawer, thumps a stack of paper on the desk, the drawings they have made that summer. Goge la máquina, Alex says. Buddy hesitates, listening to his mother and Mr. Torres in the living room. They know about the movie, of course, though he wishes they didn't. He wants the movie to astonish, to annihilate. Unfinished, under adult eyes, it is only childish. Andale, Alex says. From under Alex's bed, Buddy retrieves the black leather bag and unzips it, releasing its smells of cedar and oil and the faint, bitter smell of Grandma Turner's house. Among the five yellow boxes, 17 and a half minutes of film is the camera. Super 800 Electro reads its metal plate. There are dials to record the length of film in meters and feet, dials to adjust shutter speed and widen or narrow the aperture to film indoors or out. He presses the trigger. Its sleek black metal feels powerful, irrefutable in his hands. Andale, Alex says, Mira. Alex presses down on the top of the stack of paper with one hand, holding up the other end with his fingertips, a flip book. Buddy uncaps the lens. The pages are dirty and smudged, once he has seen a thousand times. But in the camera's dark box, its square screen, what he sees is already different somehow, part of a story. In herky-jerky motion, as the pages blur past, the horse bursts from the ground, no more than a skeleton. His eyes edged red like glowing coals. His coat turns smooth, his wings fan out. He tosses his mane, striking lightning from his hooves. His eyes like quicksilver mirrors. It is not how Buddy remembers the horse he saw with his father at Fort Polk or even how he imagined it. And how he remembers and imagines it don't matter anymore. Alex wraps the side of his head hard. Piense en las cosas buenas, he says. That other crap is just crap. Just crap, Buddy says, knowing what he means. What he means is what Buddy told him will happen when his father comes back. What Alex means is the whole adult world, but he doesn't know if he can believe him. Thank you.
1: All right. So Mike Henry was... Gonna read. All right. Uh, Michael J. Henry is co-founder and executive director at Lighthouse Writers Workshop where he teaches poetry and memoir writing. He's the author of three books of poetry, No Stranger Than My Own, Intersection, and Active Gods, and is the poetry editor for Mountain Gazette. Let's, get a, let's give Mike a big hand.
6: Thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming out. Um... This is a weird experience for me, because usually when I walk into a room, I'm almost always the most macho, masculine guy around. Um, Why are you laughing? Um, So it's just weird to be at a panel with... They're almost as macho and masculine as I am. Yeah, right. Um, so you, uh, you could probably guess what I'm going to say next My book, too Is also about bullshit male sadness <laughs> <clears throat> <clears throat> What male doesn't write about such things um, So the book So it's my uh, second full collection um, And I'm the kind of person who um, I don't like feeling anxious Like I feel right now um, <laughs> I only had two bears um, I don't like that feeling it trust me crazy and i just don't like it and it tr- i can't handle it but and yet i'm like one of those kind of I, i've always been you know talking about your childhood i'm one of those kids who like you know who would lay in bed until just the point when my mother was just about to just like tear the house down like you're late for school there's something about that sort of that, that beautiful sweet moment before something really terrible happens um so um i, I was really busy and um the first book was a surprise. I uh, you know I I felt like I didn't deserve it. It happened. It was it was something that happened, uh, you know, it was great. Um and so um I started writing poems, and I didn't really think about a second book. Um, I would steal moments um, when I, whenever I had time. I would you know, run, run over to coffee shops before I ha- had to teach a couple hours before and tell people, oh, I'm, I have to go prep for class. And as, as my wife, who's a fiction writer, a fiction teacher, says, you know, for poets, getting ready for class is like 20 minutes, read the poems, write a few comments, that kind of thing. <laughs> She has to spend hours. She's reading 25 pages. She's always like, oh, you got to... I'm like, but emotionally, it's really exhausting. So um, I really have to feel the poem. Um, So I would steal away, and I would just write. And I wouldn't think about it. Um, Often, when I teach classes, we start the class by doing a free write for 10 minutes. I usually... Did the free write along with my students um, in ten minutes, you just give them a random prompt, and we would write and so I would just do that, and I just tried not to think about it because when I thought about it, I would feel anxious um, you know of course, you feel like, oh my God, this these suck I, you know I, what am I doing why why am I doing this that kind of thing um, and so I would just I would just keep writing and I kept writing and over the course of probably maybe two two years, maybe three years um, I ended up writing a, a draft of probably thirty-five, maybe forty poems, and so at one point I sat down and I, th- I said, "Okay, I should see what I have. Maybe I have something." You know, um, I didn't really look at the poems much before that. I revised them, but I never thought about them as, as a collection. So um, I put them all in a folder on my desktop called "New Poems," and it turns out I had, you know, I had these these thirty-five poems, and then I started to see them sort of speaking to one another. Some of them were really repetitive. There was like, you know, the bullshit male sadness poem over and over and over again, just in different scenes at different times of day. Um, So it was easy to say, well, this one's better than that one, so you just toss the the bad one out. Um, But I started to see these interesting themes, and I think... um, you know, for me, it was a sort of a surprise. There were a lot of poems that had prayers in them. You know, I went to a, I went to a, a Jesuit high school for two years. Um, I, didn't, I didn't get kicked out, which was great. It was a wonderful experience. Um, and I went to Mass whenever they had... And the cool thing about this, this high school, this Jesuit high school, when you went to Mass and you had, you had the blood of Christ, it was real wine. <laughs> which was probably illegal, because the drinking age back then in New York was 18. But, you know, we were we were chugging. So, um, and it was a great experience, but I, I'm not a religious person, but um, a lot of the poems had kind of prayers, or at least a, a sense of desire, sort of, I guess, a middle-aged d- desire, dare I say. Um, and that was sort of a surprise to me, and I thought, huh, I'm, I'm working through something here, um, as poets often do, right? Yeah. Some, yeah. It's better, than ther- it's better than, yeah. And how did that make you feel, the poem asks you um, over and over again like a therapist would. Um, so I started to collect them together and, and to see how you know these sort of different kinds of themes played up, um, and in the themes you know the sort of middle aged desires desires for you know the usual world peace, um, happy family, um, safety, um, happy kids was certainly um, in many many of the poems, and in terms of anxiety the thing I worried about that um, is the s word which is I guess is really dangerous for poets the sentimentality you don't want to be sentimental which I'm like, screw you. I'm going to be sent out. I'm writing these poems. It's I, I'm going to do what I need to do. Um, but I did worry about that. Um, and as I, as I put the poems together and I started to see how they play together, I started to, you know, to say, oh, this would be a good first poem, this would be a good sort of kind of a hinge poem. Often, you know, I, I'm a fan of sort of like the three-act structure in books of poetry. Not that, it, not that everybody reads books linearly, but the idea that, you know, you read a first section that sort of sets you up, you go on this journey, and then there's a turning point, and then there's a middle, and then there's a turning point, and then you go toward the end. Um, I also realized that there were a lot of poems about... Um, you know, when you become a parent and you have these desires for happy kids and all those kinds of things, you also have this acknowledgement that, um, those you're not a kid anymore. And those people who raised you are no longer there. So there, there are some sad poems in there as well. Um, I guess poems of grief, I guess you would say. Um, and and those were, I don't want to say fun to write. They were, they were, um, I enjoyed writing them, um, in some ways, I think because they're odes to those people who raised me as well. Um, and I think all poems, not all poems, maybe all poems, that's a good question. Are all poems odes to something that has been, that is gone? I, I don't know. Think about that for a few minutes. <laughs> um and then, so, uh, my first book was uh, published by Ghost Road Press, which then got appropriated by Conundrum Press, which we can talk about in the Q&A if you're curious about that stuff. Um, Conundrum Press is a local press. They're awesome. Caleb Sealing runs them. Sonia Unrein designs the books. They're, they're incredible. So, um, I just said to Caleb, you know, would you like to look at a second book? High anxiety. When I asked him that question, he said, sure, what the hell, I'll take a look. And... Um, he liked it. I'm not sure if he read it first, but he said he liked it. <laughs> I'm read a couple of poems. Um, this is called Useful. What should I say about this? Um, it's, a, it's a situation. Uh, it's a sort of a, a relationship poem. Useful. And it's about man- manhood. And that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to read the poem now. <laughs> Here's your chance to be useful, she said, but it was no use. I slithered under the house around foundation struts and decrepit black pipe. Sebastian the cat was under there, but he and I were two magnets negative to negative. So when I hunkered closer, those red eyes hissed and receded. Sweat bloomed all over me, the flashlights sputtered, the earth sandpapered my knees and elbows, and she coached and advised, but I could not get any closer. As I lay, not dying, but entombed, recumbent between the two, precious woman, precious cat, their mutual devotion and unseen filament, I could have plucked like a guitar string, a love song I'd always be deaf to. I was completely, totally Lost, stuck under a house in the crawl space between earth and abode, girl and cat, hoping for one of them to call me near and nuzzle me in the way all men need to be nuzzled. Lost boys, we all are. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of fits the subject, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, right? Yeah, Yeah. Here's another one. This is sort of, yeah, talking about bullshit and male sadness. Um, this is kind of autobiographical. Um, and it took place in, in, in my 20s. Um, a little bit is made up, but um, so when you're 20s and you're sort of an artistic fellow, you think you're really deep and you know what's going on. And that's where I met my wife, Andrea, and I, why she stuck with me, because I was really full of a lot of stuff. Um, it's great. Yes, exactly. Uh, it's called Serious Talk. As a reference to The Replacements, the band, one of the best guitar bands ever. Yeah? Okay. Serious talk. You and I settle in against the dark wood bar as The Replacements' song, Here Comes a Regular, pulls us into the ease we used to know. In our late 20s, we are sage men who talk of big things, summer plans, grad school, women, And their complaints. And then eventually, solemnly, because we are serious dudes, our parents. How when they're gone, they're gone. The absurdity of it. Where the hell did they go? And how lonely or inscrutable they were when they were here, when they still wore shoes, not those final casket shoes, the ones with scratched and burdened soles, which, come on now, is a word we are too wise to consider a worthy symbolic homophone, so hokey and overdone. And we confess to each other, how lonely are we? Pretty damn lonely. <laughs> Mostly when the season is brutally cold or killer hot, when our lives are chugging onward, but no one comes knocking or pens us a letter. We sip the bass ale from the bottle, taking our medicine, doctor's orders. We are through with purge and drama, with idiot intoxicating weeping and wall punching. We are done with driving fast and drunk down blurry streets. Like Bishop says, the art of losing isn't hard to master, and we've had lots of practice. An hour glides by, then another. The buzz washes over us with a sweet rocking undertow, and the place is suddenly packed and loud. We run our hands along the smooth shores of the fine wood and order another round. Maddie, you and I are brothers from Buffalo, New York, and like all men of this city, we drank to make it feel less like disaster, drawing up vague but earnest plans to forge and hammer a silvery booster rocket to someday blast us into a most flawless orbit. Thanks.
1: Thanks, Mike. All right. Let's uh, jump right into the Q&A. Anybody, anybody? Yes. Yes. I think it can go that all of you are men. Oh, yeah. And I'm wondering if you think
6: that's indicative of the state of publishing
3: at this time. So, does that mean the world still cares the most about bullshit male
4: sadness? They only care about bullshit male sadness. Oh, wow. So, um.
3: Wait, can I say something yeah. first? Yeah. Sure.
4: so yeah so it's all bullshit female sadness is coming next um, you know an honest answer is I think that the, the publishers are more aware of this, the discrepancy because of Vita um, if people are aware of that I would go to that website it, it, it talks a lot about um, especially reviewers uh, especially how many females are being published in the industry Uh, by what journals and things like that. So if you really care about those (laughs) journals that are not paying much attention to female voices, you can actually go and check them out and see which ones are not doing it. Um, As far as uh, my personal opinion about that, I I think uh, the novels that I'm currently reading, five of them are probably male and four of them are... I mean, five of them are female and four of them are male on my... because I always have a stack of books next to my to my bed, Um, uh, Rachel Kirchner, Karen Russell, um, those novelists really turned me on, Uh, and they're cute too, they're cute women, great writers, Um, so I don't know, time to go, nobody wants to talk about it, so... Anyway, was that was that good? Do you guys want to take that on? Yeah,
5: yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think you're absolutely right. Yes, we're all males, and um, and the the publishing industry is is controlled by men, and the, it's the Vita. I think is a great resource for if you're you know of awareness for that it's uh, it's unfair and, and wrong uh, but i think it's changing i mean uh, the my students are women and uh, i think that the more conscious people of it are that it, it will it will shift okay <laughs> okay <laughs> yes with the two novels
0: do you always know how your book will progress? Do you when you, you you think you genesis of the book, but do you always have the ending clear or the beginning clear or sort of like an outline from the get-go or how do you progress with that?
5: No, the 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 first draft of this book I wrote in three months and and it was very little very little of that draft remains. Uh now and um, I, I'm glad. I, I, well, I think I spent a lot of time. The, I spent a lot of time. I wasted a lot of time in writing this book by try, trying to know what I was doing and uh, trying to polish things before I was really uh, ready to polish them. The beginning that I just read to you, I was one of the last things that I wrote about the. Wrote in drafting the, the book um, when I was um, I had taken a lot of painkillers and I, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 had, I had broken my foot and, and anyway that's another story but I, 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 the more um, you know novelists I know and the more novelists I talk to. Um, their advice to me, which took me years to listen to, is to try to keep things as loose as you possibly can as you're going along. Otherwise, you just are boxing yourself in. I don't know.
2: Ben? I'll say the same thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm the, I always tell you this. I'm the dumbest writer that... You've ever met, so <laughs> I start with like uh, bullet points. You know, usually just re- like you said, kind of try and keep it real loose. Several bullet points, and then up, end up fucking up every single one of them. <laughs> and then I just keep writing, and I throw away about half, and then write again, and then it's all rewriting. Yeah. This book actually started out as a uh, failed framing device for another novel. It was a historical novel set in the 1890s in Denver which is unpublishable. <laughs> so I guess I had to work out the themes that way <laughs> and do them this way. So I threw away maybe 400,000 words before I got this word done. <laughs> I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah. But I'm stupid, and there are smarter writers who do, <laughs> do things correctly. I'm just not that guy.
5: Yes. <laughs>
3: I am. Uh, I've uh, received a comp, my first contract
6: for my first.
5: Project. Congratulations! Yeah. yeah.
6: <laughs> so now I'm looking at marketing down huh. the line. Do you have
5: any good marketing secrets? Your publisher is not going to do anything for you. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> I I've spent I've spent the, the better part of the last year trying to. To teach myself how to do this, and um, I think the best advice that I could give you is that if you can afford to hire a publicist, you should do so, um, because it, I've I've spent far more than than what I would have what I would have paid a publicist to in time, <coughs> and I've done it incompetently. Um, so I think it, it, that's something. If you can afford it, it would, it would be a great um idea if you can't I, there's a whole world of like the of of book groups and it's all through the internet and that so that's you know what i'm trying to educate myself in now um but it's a tremendous amount of work so congratulations you know <laughs> that's it's great <right> <laughs>
2: I'm terrible with that too (laughs) I just try and you know show up (laughs) that's all I got (laughs) yes do any of
0: you guys plan to do
2: audio versions of your books (coughs) they've done an audio version of mine I I won't listen to it (laughs) for the obvious reasons (laughs) but uh, they got it out on one of those audio book (laughs) sites you can get it in audible
4: did you have to read it?
2: hell no I would not do that. <laughs> I mean, if they got some actor, I don't know his name. Doctor Who or something. <laughs> I don't know.
4: So it seems to me like that, just from knowing a lot of novelists, so I'll speak for all of them. Are
3: um, cute? Yeah, cute
4: novelists. You know um,
3: <laughs>
4: You know a lot of the times that's just out of The writer's hands it seems like It's it's a contracted thing with an agent It happens uh, A lot of the times it'll be with someone Who has a much better reading voice Than you do as, Unless you are Maya Angelou or somebody Who sounds awesome um, Is that accurate? That's you that's accurate. You said yeah it? I didn't
2: even know it happened Yeah, I got an email from my publisher and said we sold the audio rights and Here's how much we sold before, and it comes off here advance, and I said, okay, whatever. <laughs> Don't send me a copy. Yes? <laughs> uh, this
5: did not seem to be the first book for, for all of you, so could you tell us what the difference between your first book
4: and
3: this, uh, the experience was like?
5: Oh, This is my first book.
6: The- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the difference. Uh, well, in terms of uh, collections of poetry, it seems like when you get a first book out, it's sort of like your earliest, greatest hits. Uh, so there's really not a coherent theme. You're just like, Oh my God, I'm getting published. Oh crap. What are, what are my good poems? And you just shove them all together and trying to figure out an order for them. Um, that was definitely true for my first book. Some of them were from my um, graduate school thesis. Um, and then, you know, from the 10 years after that, um, Poems that seem to fit And what you do is It's sort of like this um, You you keep judging the poems And kicking out the ones That are at the bottom of the list Like this one's not good enough To make it in the book And I got a better poem To replace replace it Um, I think with this book You know Once I got through Sort of the anxiety Don't think too much Kind of part of it writing, Writing the drafts then it was sort of like, okay, I want to see this be a coherent whole. I want to see how it fits together. Um, so that was a lot more fun. I think you feel also more confident. You know, you hear your you know your, your grad school teachers and other people like, oh, don't write about that. It's like, I'm going to write about that. I'm going to put the replacements in a poem. I don't care. You know, that kind of thing. So you, you have a little bit more... Um, more agency with your own work, I think. You you just feel more confident, um, and so I, I had more fun. You know, I put notes. I put notes in the poems after the poems, like you know, just in case you guys ever wanted to understand like what some of the oblique references were. You know, this is you know that that kind of thing, um, and that was really fun too. Um, so I think it's um, it's more enjoyable, I guess, and you you're more um, you consider the work as a whole more than you would in the first book.
4: Yeah, I guess uh, a lot of the same. I guess I have a a lot of the same answer to that. Um, I felt more um, validated as a poet than I had in in my first collection. So I this sounds terrible, but I actually thought less about my second collection than I did my first um, about how it was going to connect, how it was going to all work together. Um, One of the things about poetry collections is that that sometimes, or a lot of the times, they don't have any sort of thread running through them. Um, I always want to have some sort of narrative thread running through it, but I cared less about that narrative thread for my second book. And I think a lot of it's just that validation. You kind of are like, wow, okay, I'm sort of a poet at this point. I had a book published. And then now you, so you're 44% poet at that point. And then you get the second book published and now you're 45% authentic poet at that point. Um, But I don't know if you ever feel maybe that last moment in bed at 95 years old. You're like, and then, oh, I'm a poet, 100% poet. And you just keel over and that's it. Um, So I don't know if the confidence ever is truly uh there, but the belief i guess is if that's a if that's a an answer did
5: someone answer a question over
3: here
2: what's the, what's yeah. yeah. well, i i don 't have much to say a, this was a much tougher book for me than the first oh, one so it didn't really i don't i don't I've, like even with the charlie leuven book i don 't even think it matters at least for me what the other book is. The next one always sucks and it's just uh it 's just uh terribly you know, time-consuming and irritating and tough. I mean, I love it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, that's all. I, I, I hope to achieve someday that feeling of confidence and, okay, I know what I'm doing, but I ain't there yet. <laughs> so maybe. Uh,
3: I'd like to ask Ben a question about editing. So yes,
2: It depends on the book. On the first book I've read, the first novel I wrote was with a small press, so they basically copy edited yeah. and said, "You know, you spelled all your Spanish words wrong. You're an idiot." Yeah. So I went back in and did read it those. But on, the, on this book, you know, just, um, they have a real editing team and all that. My editor, his name is Adam Wilson, uh, and he's uh, he's brilliant. You know, I wasn't sure how it would go, but he sent me a letter. The first letter he sent me on this book, he said, here's what I think your 12 themes are, your top themes, and here's how I think I'm going to help you hone those themes so that they make more sense in the book. And he was dead on. I mean, like every single thing. So I, he just had an amazing amount of trust for him at that point. And I'm really excited. I never had that experience before. I've met people who have had bad editors, you know. And that's uh, that's a horrible, horrible thing. <laughs> But yeah, you get a lot of editors, and then he gave me suggestions, and I was, he was, I was free to say no, I'm not doing this one, but I only did that once or twice. So was
3: there a lot of rewriting once
2: you had the contract? Uh, yeah, I was well, not rewriting so much as a, yeah, there was some rewriting, and there was some, you know, I think you might want to think about this. I wrote a couple new scenes because yeah. he thought that I left a couple things out that needed to be developed. Yeah. Um, it was just great to trust him so much. I've I've had friends who've, I don't know, anybody know Stephen Graham Jones, read his stuff? Mm-hmm. And his uh, second, I think his, his second big publishing house book, you know, they they asked for an edit he wouldn't make. And he he just canceled the contract. <laughs> so I've known people who've done that, and I have a great amount of respect for that too. But, you know, luckily I wasn't asked to do anything I couldn't do. <laughs>
6: Uh, one more question? Yes, yeah. What are you working on now? <laughs> huh. let start down there. <laughs> oh, geez. Um, not much. <laughs> um, well, in terms of marketing, you know, it's like it's hard to market a poetry book, so. Um, I tried to write. uh, I was talking to my publisher, and he was like, "You know, this parenting angle is really kind of interesting, and you can maybe sell it to like, you know." Immediately, he starts thinking of these like huge, you know, glossy magazines like Parent, you know, and Oprah would probably like it. So, um, I, I drafted a short essay about what the process was like, you know, and and how I learned about sort of my parenting process or what it's like to be a dad. Um, through writing the poems, and that was kind of a fun essay, you know. And I haven't really started to try and sell it because I don't know what to, how to do that kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of what I'm working on now. I, I haven't really been writing a lot of poetry, so um, I'm not sure why that is. Too much anxiety, I guess. I don't know. Yeah.
5: <laughs> I I've been working on trying to market this book, but I also. Um it, 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 while I was writing the novel, I would kind of take breaks, and I wrote wrote stories, and I really I want to get back to short stories, and I'm wrote, working on a memoir, and um, and yeah, that's about that's about it. I, yeah, I have another novel, but I can't talk about it. <laughs> okay.
4: So I, I'm working on a novel right now. Um, it's basically. Um, follows a little bit of my life Benedict Arnold Yeah I know It's <laughs> terrible um, But I was told that When you don't want to answer questions About what you're writing about You just say You know I'm writing a, lo- a, a, a novel right now about a, It's a love story And then as soon as, as soon as you say that You can just stop You don't have to continue on it just It's a love story Um so that's the uh that's the on the street answer as you just say it's i I'm writing a novel about a love story um, but I'm currently working on my my third collection as well at the same time. I think that poetry gives you the leisure to kind of follow sort of instincts that you can't follow with uh, fiction because it takes so much time like i can I can see something that really affects uh, that strikes me and hold it sort of close and quickly and and get a poem scratched out that I know that is going to change drastically over the next however many years. But at least the idea is there. Whereas the terrifying thing about fiction writing for me right now is is that I I go 10,000 words on something that I might have to abandon. And that's really hard for the poet inside. Like, this might have I might actually just have to hit the delete button on this thing, so you lazy poet, I know we're terrible
3: <laughs> <laughs> we're fearful and anxious
2: i got um I got two projects I'm working on. the one's a novel It's set on a prison break It's set around a prison break in the 1940s in Canyon City, which i 'm real excited about. I read this quote years ago by Jean Baudrillard, and he said the uh, the reason Disneyland exists is to make us believe that the rest of America is real. Oh and, <laughs> he said, in, in the same way that the reason prisons exist is to make us believe that the rest of society is not in itself carceral. Yeah. And I'm like, I want that fucking book. <laughs> you got the quote, I want the book. <laughs> so, so I'm trying to write that book and then I'm, uh, I'm working on a proposal for a nonfiction piece. I mentioned a buddy of mine who got killed by the cops. He was... Um, had a lot of problems stuff he was uh, He was killed by a SWAT team by a sniper they surrounded his house and at the end of his life there were two armored vehicles a uh, hundred officers a helicopter and they shot him in the head and they had every intent of killing him from the minute they showed up I read somewhere in the, uh, the sorrows of young Werther when it was published, it, uh, it caused suicides across Europe from all these sad young men. And I only want to cause one suicide, and that's the guy who killed my friend. <laughs> so that's my goal. I have lofty literary aspirations. <laughs> What's that?
1: One more question? Oh, yes, yeah, so one more question? Yeah, it's back there. Cool. Um, so all four of you.
5: I learn more from my students than they learn from me, uh, definitely. I mean, I, I, you have to, I think, um, it, 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 it's in t- teaching fiction writing or in, in uh, looking at stories, uh, published stories by master writers, by great writers, I'm always, I always feel like I'm learning from their work, um, it's not me teaching them a lot of the time um, so and by that I mean that um, I think you're taught a lot of things in, in graduate school or, or you know you, you, there are accepted ways of writing a story and you, that's constantly challenged in, in teaching and it's constantly challenged in how people are responding to uh, uh published work so that's i mean it's very valuable to me as a a writer
6: yeah it's just inspiring i mean you know just to see other people trying new stuff out uh being willing to risk themselves you know i just love that of course the 10 minute free writes in the beginning of class is really good for me too um and then i think yeah you, you i become a much more avid reader of poetry um, not that I don't read it when I'm not teaching, but I read it a lot more aggressively when I'm teaching. It's like, okay, I need to give them an example of some of the craft elements I'm going to talk about. So um, I'm reading much more actively, and that in itself is inspiring. And then to take what you read and to say, why is this good, and then to explain it to somebody, that I feel like I learn as I go through that process. So it's, it's, it's good. It's a good thing to do.
4: I think it's just it, it makes me pay more attention to whatever I'm reading or the world around me in a way that, um, that if, I, if I weren't teaching I think maybe I wouldn't pay as much attention um, and I don't, I don't remember who someone helped me who the famous person was who said that uh, writers are just, uh, just pay more attention to the world than the average person mm-hmm. I don't remember who said that um, but teaching forces you to because one of the great fears of all teachers is, is being <coughs> caught flat footed when you don't know your stuff Right, so you pay more attention to the great writers um, uh, and the current writers who are um, underrepresented, Um,
3: and it forces me to yeah, Yeah. exactly. Well, exactly. (laughs) Yeah,
4: Um, but you pay more attention, I guess, is the is the short answer, and that's helpful.
2: (laughs) I don't know. Uh, (laughs) I think. I mean before Lighthouse, before I started here about a year ago, I didn't really know any writers. <laughs> I mean, personally. I, I emailed them and shit, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean like I knew people on Facebook but I did not really know any you know, real writers and to me this this entire uh community's been a godsend and you know uh, being a, being able to come in once a week and talk seriously with people who are dedicated uh writers has just been um I've I've felt myself get a lot better and uh, pay a lot more attention. I just love it. So that's all i got.
0: (laughs) Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.